Hey, Crossings podcast community. This teaching is called Trust the Process and is the first teaching in our Lent 2022 series, Away Not Our Own. It was taught by Caleb Gilmore on March 6th, 2022. Thanks for listening. So I know that this is going to be a really weird question to ask in the first week of March, but how many of you are New Year's resolution people? Raise your hand if you're New Year's resolution every year. One person, two people willing to admit. Okay. The reason I ask is because I'm usually not a New Year's Year's resolution type person because it's usually like this week that I stop doing the thing that I said I was going to not do or do. Uh, So this year, uh, instead of a New Year's resolution, I decided I wanted to pick up something at some point in the year, like no pressure, uh, but I wanted to do something that had to do with creativity, something that was a discipline. Um, And one of the crafts that I wanted to take up this year was baking. I know, right? Um, Truthfully, I have to admit, this has to do with watching the Great British Bake Off through the pandemic. Uh, that's all I'd watched for a good spell there. And I want nothing more than to receive the coveted Hollywood handshake. Like I want to make something beautiful and delicious enough to be worthy of that. Um, but really, truly the real reason that I want to try baking is because I think it would make me slow down. It would make me commit myself to a process that has to do with precision to make something beautiful and hopefully delicious after submitting to the art and the science of something at which I am a novice. That's what I really want. Um, Most of us, I'm, I'm a big bread person, can really taste the difference between a homemade loaf of sourdough bread versus something that was produced and sold at Kroger, right? There's a difference between the mass-produced hostess pastries or cakes that you can get at a grocery store versus the artisan handcrafted cake that you could get down the road at Magpies. Big Magpies person here. But since the Industrial Revolution, uh, steam mills, new technology, most bread producers have a goal of making as much bread as possible for as cheaply as possible to distribute it as widely as possible with the greatest profit possible. But real baking, the old ways, the stuff that you would do at your house, takes time. And I think that there's a parallel between baking and Lent. Um, If you don't know what Lent is, Lent is this season of 40 days that we are now entering into in the church calendar. And on Wednesday, we observed Ash Wednesday, which is the beginning of Lent. It's this day of ashes, this day of remembering our imminent deaths. If you didn't know that there was a holiday about that, welcome to the church. I didn't grow up with any observation of Lent. Uh, It was not a part of my childhood, not a part of the church that I grew up in. Um, I didn't know anything about this period of fasting, of meditation, of slowing down and reflecting on our shared mortality. And it wasn't really even until last year or so that I learned that Lent actually came into existence in this season in a way that I was completely unfamiliar with. Apparently, there was 
before there was this 40-day period of fasting called Lent, uh, early Christians had tons of different ways that they would prepare for Easter. Uh, Christians from Africa to modern-day France might fast for one day. Sometimes it would be two days. Maybe it would be 40 hours. But there wasn't any kind of standardized practice. There wasn't any set of rules. People would just do it differently based on the communities that they lived in. By the middle of the third century, so like 250 or so, people in Egypt might fast for a whole week, while some Christians in Rome would fast for three weeks leading up to Easter. In fact, we don't have any evidence that the early church celebrated any kind of Lent over 40, 40 days like we do until after around 325 at this big church meeting called the Council of Nicaea. Basically, all of this little history lesson is to say that the season of Lent that we observe as a church is really something that emerges from a ton of different traditions. The first time Lent was standardized and organized as a period of 40 days leading up to Easter, the first time it was all put in that, in that organization, the people who celebrated Lent had never done it that way before. It was a new way. It was a different way. It was a way not their own that they entered into. So for the next six weeks or so, we're going to observe this period of Lent together Sundays, and we're calling this series A Way Not Our Own. That when we come into this season of Lent, we're not trying to get our own way. We're not trying to organize or craft some psychologically manipulative pathway that gets you where we want you to be. We're submitting ourselves to a process that we did not create. And one of the reasons that I think it's so important to embrace this season of Lent is because it's so obviously something we would not do in this day and age. It's not something that we would choose for ourselves. Maybe especially this year right? I know that the last two years or so have been incredibly difficult for everyone. In a world where we have lost nearly six million people to date worldwide in this pandemic, we would not choose to take an even deeper look into the abyss of death. In a world where we have competing ideas of reality and what's real, we would not normally take 40 days to consider the futility of reality. In a world in which we are forced to watch Ukrainians being invaded by Russians, Israelis clash with Palestinians, and Saudis and Iranians fight over Yemen, we would not normally choose to consider our own powerlessness and the abuse of power in the world. But I think it's precisely because we would not choose to fast, to contemplate death and despair, that we ought to during Lent, because it is truly a way that is not our own. Which brings me back to baking. Baking is like Lent, because it takes time. Like Lent, baking requires a proper process. You have to do things in a certain order precisely, skipping any step in the baking process would lead to a disaster of a dessert. 
following whatever we feel like putting into the bowl whenever we want to, instead of abiding by a recipe, would get us into trouble. So this Lent, we're going to bake together uh, with the hopes that when we get to Easter, we're going to have a cake to eat of some kind, maybe literally. You'll have to stick around and find out. (laughs) Each week of Lent, so the next six weeks, we're going to gradually do one step in this process of baking a cake. We're not going to rush it. We're not going to skip steps. We're going to do it one step at a time together with the hopes that at the end of it, we'll have cake. But we have to do it the correct way. We have to trust the process. This week, we need to make sure that we have the proper recipe. So I don't have anything up here. There's no ingredients to gather. First, we need to know exactly what it is we're doing. Throughout this Lent season this year, uh, we're going to look at stories from the Gospels, these stories uh, about Jesus that are found in the New Testament as they appear in the lectionary, which is essentially just a collection of suggested readings throughout this time period. So to sort of submit ourselves to this process of a way not our own, we're not picking these texts. These texts are picking us. We're submitting to something that we did not engineer here. So traditionally, the first Sunday of Lent is all about wilderness. And the wilderness is a big theme in the Bible, whether you've read it all or not. Uh, From the Hebrew slaves who are liberated from slavery in Egypt in the story of Exodus, to the beginning of Jesus' teaching career, Most good things have to go through a wilderness period. And so Lent begins there. And that's where we're going to start today in the book of Luke chapter 4. This is how it begins. Jesus returned from the Jordan filled with the Spirit. The Spirit took him off into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested by the devil. He ate nothing during that time. And at the end of it, he was hungry. I always think that's one of the funnier lines in Scripture. After 40 days, he was hungry. Almost doesn't need to be said. But right before this passage, uh, Jesus was baptized by his cousin John. And and many people see this as sort of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the beginning of his teaching career. So right after that scene, we have Jesus going off into the wilderness, this dry, arid, desert-like place to be tested for 40 days by this character called the devil. Now, we do not have a time to go into all of the things that might be considered a deep dive on the history of the devil, but just for your information, for we're all on the same page, the, the, the devil has this sort of lifespan throughout the Bible. He's called by different names. In Greek, it's diabolos. Um, in Hebrew, it's hasatan which literally is something like an accuser, an adversary. Uh, Basically, in the ancient world, these audience members that this text is being written for would have believed that this being's job specifically was to prosecute human beings and test their devotion to God, whether that was from the standpoint of an evil being, sometimes it was more of a positive thing, that this guy's working for God. We're supposed to imagine, to some extent, a divine prosecuting attorney of some kind. The job of this being is to make sure that your loyalties truly lie with God. And so in order to do that, accusations are hurled against you. Now, 
When any Israelite at this time that this story was being written would have heard this story about someone going out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested, you can bet that their minds would have jumped to another story in the Bible. The story from Israel's history in a collection of books called the Torah, uh, specifically the books of Exodus to Deuteronomy. The story of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. So this wilderness story in the book of Exodus and Numbers, they're, they're full of these constant failures of the people of Israel out in the desert, out in the wilderness, wandering around aimlessly trying to trust Yahweh, the God of Israel. And even though these people had witnessed a miracle in the deliverance of the parting of the sea, even though they had received protection from God, they had received the Torah at Mount Sinai, this new way to be human, they were constantly choosing their own way over a way not their own, the way of God. For instance, there's a story in Exodus chapter 16, right after they've been delivered from Egypt. It says, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, Moses and Aaron, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Just a few empty stomachs. Days after their deliverance, and the Israelites actually start to think that slavery with food was better than the freedom that God was leading them to. I think it's funny how we idealize the past, uh, even if it wasn't that great, as soon as something starts to go wrong in our lives. How quickly Israel was willing to return to slavery because of their inability to see past a momentary discomfort. Keep that failure, keep that, that story in the back of your mind as we continue in Jesus' story here in Luke. This is how it goes next. It says, If you are God's son, said the devil, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. It is written, replied Jesus, it takes more than bread to keep you alive. So Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. That means no food, right? And the first thing that this devil accuses him or, or tries to get him to do is to turn stones into bread. And, and it's kind of an obvious temptation at one level. It's the most basic. Jesus hadn't eaten anything for 40 days. What would be the harm in using your power to make a meal? But just think about that story we just read from the book of Exodus. This story of Israel in the wilderness refusing to trust in God's provision. Jesus in this scene is being tested to see if he'll be a self-serving leader, a king, a messiah, if he'll be a miracle sideshow that just does cheap tricks to get momentary praise from a crowd, or if he will trust that his mission is more than about how many people show up for an event. The real temptation here is not necessarily about bread at all. The real temptation is, do you trust God? Will you have a scarcity mindset that says there's not enough and I have to get what's for me? Or will you trust that there is already enough? 
The story of Israel grumbling in the wilderness in the book of Exodus, wishing for a return to Egypt, is being alluded to here. Jesus responds to this accuser by going into the story of Israel with a response that Israel didn't come up with on its own. He pulls this line from the book of Deuteronomy, one of the books of the Torah. He says this. This is how it originally reads in Deuteronomy. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, this miraculous bread that God gave them throughout their wilderness wanderings, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The whole wilderness exodus story is supposed to be about realizing that God's going to give you food if you need food. But there's something more than a grumbling stomach that needs to be satisfied. And that's what trusting God is about. So Jesus succeeds where Israel failed in this story. Temptation number one. But there are two more. The next thing that Luke tells us is that the devil took him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you authority over all this, said the devil, and all the prestige that goes with it. It's been given to me, you see, and I can give it to anyone I like. So it can all be yours if you'll just worship me. It is written, replied Jesus, the Lord your God is the one you must worship. He is the only one you must serve. So in the time that Jesus is living here, in the time that he's entering into this ministry, there was this expectation in the air. Rome was in charge of the world. And the people of Israel had been subjugated to these empires for hundreds of years. They had been given a promise that they were supposed to be God's people, that they were supposed to have their own king. And that king, they called a Messiah. There was an expectation that this Messiah was coming any day. And that expectation of kingship came with certain checklists of things to look for, things that people were expecting. And Jesus walks into this moment at the beginning of his career out in the desert, and he throws that checklist away. For, for many people, the expectation of a Messiah, Israel's king, at this time period was that the Messiah would be a world ruler with military strength. During this time, the people of God were being exploited, taxed by Caesar. People were desperate for hope and for relief. Religious leaders and politicians were preying on people. So if you're Jesus, the temptation isn't necessarily about worshiping the devil. It's whether or not you're finally going to be able to let your people be free. Imagine, just imagine, being offered the ability to solve all the world's problems to bring peace to the oppressed, those under siege and civil war, those without food and resources. You can fix all of that. I actually don't know how easy this offer would be to turn down, if you care. Especially when you consider that what this devil is offering is a kingdom without a cross, without suffering, without death. But Jesus resists them to this temptation. He accepts the harder path of suffering. He does not bend the knee 
to the devil's offer of political power. Two tests down, one to go. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, stood with him on a pinnacle of the temple. If you're God's son, he said, throw yourself down from here. It's written that he will give his angels a command about you to look after you, and they will carry you in their hands so that you won't hit your foot against a stone. It's been said, replied Jesus, you mustn't put the Lord your God to the test. So, I'll give you a little confession here. I used to be one of those people that got into these like scripture quoting wars with people, like debating the meaning of scripture. Some of you know me from a long time ago. If you know, you know. Hopefully you're not, you've not got that past. Um, it's been a long time since I've done any of that though. But, but I remember what it was like. And, and I think I've always had this understanding of that's what the Satan and the devil were doing with Jesus here. They were just getting into this scripture battle to see who knew it better. And I think I've misunderstood what's been happening in this final temptation pretty much my whole life. The usual comments are something like this, like, even the devil knows scripture, right? Look how much, look how much better Jesus is. Of course, Jesus knows the Bible better than Satan, right? He's the one who wrote it. There's all these kinds of trite throwaway lines that, that really tamp down the meaning of what's happening here. I think we're supposed to not be surprised that this accuser, this devil, knows the Bible. I think we're supposed to be surprised by the way that Jesus uses the Bible. The location of this Bible-based rap battle is just as important as the scriptures that are quoted. The location is at the temple, the religious symbol, the holy space of Judaism, this place where heaven and earth were supposed to have met. And there was this belief that Israel's Messiah would do something important starting at the temple. There was a prophet, Malachi, in the Old Testament that said these words. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So all of this is going to take place starting at the temple, according to that prophecy. This is where this temptation is taking place. The final temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, according to Luke, was a temptation for Jesus to make use of his position as Messiah to be a populist, to wield his power, to do some amazing display for everyone to see so that they would immediately know who he was. And what I think is remarkable about the way that Jesus counters this offer is that his approach to the Bible isn't some sort of proving ground for strength and power. There's not a desire to use Scripture as a tool or a weapon to exert influence or power over someone else. Instead, it's a humble submission to a process greater than himself. Instead, he chooses to be reminded of his place in the story. Will Jesus set, accept the acceptance from crowds? Will he seek the praise of people based on stunts, or will he trust in the identity that will be revealed by God? Uh, there's a book uh, by Henri Nouwen, who is, I think, no longer with us, but um, he wrote this book based on this story, this story of Jesus in the wilderness. And 
I've read this book several times, and I can't ever get past this one uh, series of quotes that he has in this book, specifically about this temptation, um, because it honestly is one of my biggest hang-ups when it comes to being a part of the church. Um, and the way that this Jesus, who we all claim to follow, did things so much differently than the way that I tend to see them in the places where he is worshipped. This is the words of Henri Nouwen. He says, When I ask myself the main reason for so many people having left the church during the past decades in France, Germany, Holland, also in Canada and America, the word power easily comes to mind. One of the greatest ironies of the history of Christianity is that its leaders constantly gave in to the temptation of power. Political power, military power, economic power, or moral and spiritual power. Even though they continued to speak in the name of Jesus, who did not cling to his divine power, but emptied himself and became as we are. The temptation to consider power an apt instrument for the proclamation of the gospel is the greatest of all. We keep hearing from others as well as saying to ourselves that having power, provided it is used in the service of God and your fellow human beings, is a good thing. With this rationalization, crusades took place. Inquisitions were organized. Indigenous Americans were enslaved. Positions of great influence were desired. Episcopal places, splendid cathedrals, and opulent seminaries were built. And much moral manipulation of conscience was engaged in. Every time we see a major crisis in the history of the church, he says, we always see that a major cause of rupture is the power exercised by those who claim to be followers of the poor and powerless Jesus. The irony of reading these stories in Lent is that we read these stories about what Jesus did in these temptations, the way that he submitted himself to this process that involved death, ultimately, that involved the laying down of a pursuit for power, and how quickly we leave the doors in pursuit of those very things whenever we study these stories. Jesus passed these tests. He submitted to the process of the kingdom that first went through suffering and death, but the question that we ask ourselves during Lent is, are we really interested in that process? Luke concludes this whole story by saying, when the devil had finished each temptation, he left him until another opportunity. So it's not over. There will be other opportunities, but this momentary wilderness temptation is past. It's over. For us, as we enter into this season of Lent, the series of fasting and, and meditating and contemplating, there is a great temptation for us to avoid difficult, hard things. There's a great temptation for us to use power, telling ourselves it's for a good cause. There's a great temptation to use some sense of divinity, an idea of transcendence or, or the mystery of God, for our own notoriety, to establish our identity, to prove ourselves to someone. And yet this story from Luke's gospel begs us to choose a different path, especially during Lent. We are being asked in this story 
and through the season of Lent to take away that is not our own. Before we get to Easter, and before we taste this sweet, delicious cake that we're all going to have together, we've got to make sure that we have the right ingredients. We need to make sure that we're using the right recipe to define new life. We need to at least make sure that that's the same definition that Jesus used when he began his ministry. So, if you'll forgive the cheesiness, uh, there's a recipe for Lent. <laughs> a recipe for resurrection. Based off of this story in the wilderness, according to Luke. Ingredient number one. Dare to be your true self at the risk of irrelevance. When Jesus decided not to make stones turn into bread, he risked being an irrelevant Messiah that did not feed the people the way they wanted to be fed. Jesus avoided the scarcity mentality of turning the rocks into bread, which asks of us, are we willing to adopt the same mindset? Are we willing to trust? Ingredient number two. Dare to do the right thing in community over individual affirmation. Is this about the glory of being right or submitting to a process of doing it right? And finally, dare to seek a faith that is powerless. I can think of no greater radical call in this world than to choose a path of powerlessness. It is the thing that we resist most in our world, and we tend to be glued to the pursuits of power and the acquisition of it. The beauty of Lent, the beauty of this season of fasting, is not that we're magically rescued from the wickedness of the world. We aren't. All the bad things do not go away. They become more clear. Indeed, we lean into death. We lean into mortality. We lean into the process of letting go. But the reality that we are heading towards is one that does not hide from evil. Instead, it confronts it wherever it exists and looks at it in the face. If we don't trust the process of Lent, if we don't let go of our own ways, our own privileges, our own proclivities to fill our own stomachs, to seek our own prestige, to exercise our own power, we run the risk of messing up the cake that is Easter, that is resurrection, keeping the stone over the grave. The question for us as we go through Lent is, will we choose our own way? Or will we choose a way not our own?